Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode 146. On today's show, we're sharing the recording of a panel discussion I moderated last weekend at the A Plus D Museum in Los Angeles as part of their current exhibition, The Los Angeles Schools. The panel brought together five students and three faculty members representing student-led publications from LA's architecture programs. Rain Laborde and Phoebe Webster represented UCLA's Pool. Marceline Gao represented SciArc's Off-Ramp. Richard Mapes, Corey Yaguchi, and Irvin Schaefer represented SciArc's Underscore. Alvin Huang represented USC's Supertall. And Stephen Phillips, Cal Poly LA Metro's director, represented their program's hardcover publication, LA10. Our talk covers a lot of ground, exposing the inner workings of editing and producing publications in today's unique and highly transformative media landscape. Our conversations cover issues of editorial decision-making, design, freedom of expression, and thoughts on the future of student publishing in architecture school. I'm really excited to be here with uh, panelists from four different publications representing four different schools that are on display right now at A&D's LA Schools Exhibition. When we originally conceived of this panel, the original idea was to look at specifically and exclusively student-run and managed small-run publications at architecture schools in LA. And we realized that SciArc and UCLA with Pool and Underscore and OfferAmp were the two schools that fit that, that model. So we wanted to include all four schools. So we extended that definition a little bit to include other publications such as one-off publications and small-run publications from Cal Poly Metro LA program and USC. So I'd like to start out with allowing each of our panelists to introduce themselves and their publications. Would you like to get started? Hi, I'm Phoebe Webster. I'm a content editor at Pool. Uh, this will be my second year contributing to the team. Hi, I'm Rain Laborde. I'm the returning managing editor of Pool. So we're the student journal of the UCLA School of Arts and Architecture. Um, we've been around for five years now. We publish annually and we accept submissions from around the world. So we're not just student work, but we are curated by a team of 10 to 15 student editors and a PhD advisor. Hi, I'm Alvin Huang, um, associate professor at USC. Uh, so as Paul noted, we're not a student publication. We have a few publications back there, which are publications about student work. So there's a series called SESI, which uh, each edition, there's three editions back there, is a uh, documentation of one research studio that was co-taught with a uh, visiting faculty member. So there's one by uh, Francis Anderton with Frank Gehry, one by Jessica, oh, I forgot her name. Okay, Jessica, anyways, <laughs> with Michael Malton, and then uh, myself with uh, Ma Yan Song and uh, their uh, research studio projects. Hi, I'm Urban Schaefer. I'm one of the graphic designers for Underscore at SciArc and one of the senior editors. Hi, I'm Richard Mapes. Um, I'm the distribution and development senior editor for Underscore at SciArc. And just a little bit about Underscore. Underscore started five years ago. Um, it's an exclusively SciArc publication that sources its work from students from a very diverse body of students at SciArc for the sake of cultivating unique conversations that are run exclusively by students. So. <laughs> I'm Corey Yaguchi. I'm also one of the senior editors of Underscore. I do the writing and curation. Hi, I'm Marceline Gao, and I am the faculty advisor for OffRamp, which is SciArc's online journal. Hi, uh, Stephen Phillips. I'm the director of the Cal Poly LA Metro program. I'm a professor at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. We have a program here in Los Angeles. 
we produced a book. It's kind of an international book. It's by Lars Mueller Publishers, but it was a student project that uh, involved the Getty Research Institute and UCLA's oral history program and went for about five years. So it's a larger project that was actually created by the students and they made the book. So. I'd like to start with talking about the uh, the origins behind some of these publications. I'd like to start with uh, Marceline. I know that OfRAMP started way before you entered SciArc, so you're not super familiar with the uh, with the history of the publication. Uh, I believe it started in 1987 and lasted until 2000. During that time, I was a student at SciArc, so I was very familiar with the publication. It was a printed publication back then. And then after 2000, it was on hiatus for a long time. And you brought it back, I believe, in 2014. And so could you talk a little bit about why you brought it back and what you brought from the history of the magazine? Yes. So the magazine, uh, also what's interesting about OfRAMP is that it was a collaboration between students at CalArts who did a lot of the graphic design work. And I think even some CalArts faculty had been involved at that point. So it's something maybe I wanted to talk about tonight as well as the way that a publication can maybe act as a, um, a bridge between different institutions. Uh, currently, we're, we're not in that situation. We, we don't have a collaboration with another institution. But that was one of the things from the original print version of OfRAMP that I thought was really kind of interesting and important. So in 2014, when we established our Design of Theory Fellowship at SciArc, Hernan Diaz-Alonso, our director, was really intent on looking at how can we design theory in a sense, like how do we actually apply our skills as architects to creating a discursive platform. So the decision was made to actually have a student journal, a student-run journal. This was about the same time, I believe, that Underscore started. So this was a idea that would be the Design of Theory Fellows would would be the editors for this. And so when we started talking with Dora Epstein-Jones, who was then the coordinator of the Design of Theory Fellowship program, we decided to, why invent a new title for this journal? Why not actually kind of revisit some of the origins of OfRAMP and bring that back as an online format? And so that evolved when our postgraduate program for design theory and pedagogy began. The journal kind of evolved. And now uh, those editors, some of whom are here tonight, we have Lena Pozniakova and Emmanuel Raul Duval, who are here in the front row. And I'd be happy at some point if you also want to add in some points as you just edited the last issue. So, yeah, I think that, well, one one problem uh, that we've encountered is how to create a community of continuity so that really, I think that's what happened probably with that, uh, the original off-ramp was that there was no one to hand off to in the student community and somehow it just went sort of dormant for a while. And so now we really work very hard at establishing connections between the current class and then the incoming class. So to get our next generation of editors on board. And I think some of them are also here tonight, the students who are going to be taking that up. So was there a specific reason why you decided to bring back OfRAMP in a digital only format as opposed to continuing the print format? Actually, yeah, we, I, I really wanted to have a print format. I love printed matter. I think printed matter is really 
fundamental. I think it just changes the way you encounter the content, especially when we're surrounded by so much digital content now. But unfortunately, the budget for that didn't exist. So what we did find, though, is that when we were given a very small budget to have a content management system built for us, that that enabled kind of the editorial tools to be handed over quite easily in a sense. So there, you know, as we've worked with it, I've actually begun to appreciate the fact that, you know, you can actually very easily have a new team come on board and begin to, to operate in that format. So in a sense, you know, I, there, there's something missed there in terms of the hard copy, but I also think that the digital has been, um, really productive for us as well. And I think that and maybe this might be a nice time to hand over to our, our other publication um, yeah, underscore yeah, because I definitely. think th- I love the fact that that we're so, we're different and we both exist within the institution. Yeah, so let's talk about underscore the other publication that is uh, representing SciArc tonight. Richard, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about what you know about because uh, I know that underscore started before you uh, started attending SciArc and became part of that team. Well, it started about three years before I arrived at SciArc and Irvin also. And Corey, you were there for the year after its first year, right? First year. So from what we understand, and I say that nodding to the issue of continuity that we'd also like to address, but from what we understand about how Underscore emerged as SciArc was that it was a response to crossbreeding different ideas that were happening in different programs at SciArc in a student-controlled platform. We kind of recognized that communication between MARC 1 students, MARC 2 students, and the undergraduate students was lacking, and that all of the all of the nuanced information and points of views and perspectives that the students were bringing with them missed opportunities to collide with each other and create interesting and maybe kind of intense conversations between the students at SciArc. So when it comes to the issue of continuity, you know, a student-run journal is made from people at SciArc who were at SciArc anywhere from five years to one year for the postgraduate programs, which means that passing the torch, especially with a printed publication like ours is, has been extremely challenging. And it means that every year we have very different results from the editorial team, which we think is on one hand extraordinary, but also on the other hand can result in years where things kind of slip slip through the gaps, I guess. How would you compare underscore with OfferM? Right. Well, I think the biggest defining difference is that we are a printed publication and we have been for five years. No. And the really unique thing about being a printed publication means that the way that our information is distributed is distributed from one person's hand to another person's hand. So it has very intense kind of implications in terms of how knowledge is passed through SciArc and how far it is able to reach outside of SciArc. So in that sense, we have kind of recognized that we're very much of an underground organization that is very inwardly focused on the student body for the sake of incubating student ideas during the time that they're at SciArc. So that when they leave SciArc, those ideas can be as powerful as they can possibly be in, in every dimension. Well, I'd like to move over to Pool to keep talking about these um, ongoing periodicals produced out of the architecture schools. Um, Rain, could you tell us a little bit about the history of Pool? 
Yeah, so uh, we were also, we started five years ago, and I think a lot of the origins of pool were in uh, the absence of what was and wasn't in the classroom. Um, and so wanting to establish a space for students to have very different discussions and knowing that this particular voice wasn't coming out of LA at the time, one thing that was a firm decision by Pool early on was that we didn't want to be a school journal. We were much more interested in being an academic magazine run by students. And so there were ways in which, and still are ways in which Pool presents itself, which it doesn't matter as much that we're students, perhaps. And in the beginning, the focus was much more, as you can kind of tell from our covers, which I know have been flashing up on here, an interest in irony and in aggregation and these themes that have since become much more common in the everyday architectural dialogue. Um, so we've been shifting in recent years to, uh, I think the way Phoebe put it the other day was quite interesting, a more sincere publication in some ways, but perhaps a publication that is Again, looking for what's not as much being discussed in our particular academic world. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that sincere sincerity in, in a publication? Well, I think that in the beginning with Poole's editorial team choosing themes that are, you know, plays on the word pool, pool table, pool party, it's sort of shifted as the student body has shifted and in turn the content that we're curating has shifted alongside of that. Alvin, to be honest, I'm a little surprised that USC doesn't have a similar student-run publication. Before we talk about the pamphlet series that, that you were involved in, I'm wondering if you can provide any insight into why that might be. To be honest, uh, I, I really have no idea. Uh, and it's actually something that I started asking around. Like, like when I got the invitation for this, I actually tried to hand it off. I was like, there's got to be somebody else who's better suited for this. And I started going around asking and there was no one. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I don't know, but I, I would love to see it. Okay, so getting into uh, your super tall installation in the three-part pamphlet series, uh, Sezi, is that how you... Uh, yeah. So SESI is a Chinese term for small printed matter. Um, how did this pamphlet series come about? Uh, so this came about from uh, former Dean Ching Yan Ma, and it was one of his initiatives where uh, he was bringing in these what were called uh, Dean's special guests. So Frank Gehry, Michael Maltzen, and uh, Ma Yan Song. And uh, he wanted to document their contributions as something that would uh, basically have a longer legacy in the school than that one studio. And so all of those are kind of focused on critical urban issues in different locations. I think Michael and Frank were both looking at L.A., where uh, Ma was looking at uh, Shenzhen and New York City. But in both cases, all three cases, um, it's a sort of joint effort between uh, the, the permanent faculty member that was working full time at the school with the visiting faculty member. And uh, all of the work that's shown is student work. Stephen. As the uh, director of Cal Poly's Metro LA program, uh, perhaps you could just, for those of us in the audience that may not be entirely familiar with the program, maybe you could just kind of give a brief introduction to what that program consists of. So uh, we began about 10 years ago here in Los Angeles. You know, we're San Luis Obispo. Our students uh, go off campus and we produced a place for them to be here in LA where they intern in architecture offices we produce events uh, used uh, at the A Plus D Museum, but also now mainly at the Helms. 
We also do other sort of national events. And they have studios. They have a whole curriculum uh, with now four or five other faculty members here in L.A. So it's kind of grown as a, as a satellite for our program. We have one in San Francisco as well, but it's slightly different. And how many students are in the Cal Poly we Metro? We started as 11, now we're 30, so uh, maybe 32. It, it grows every year a little bit. So, so from, from what from I've fatigue. gathered uh, about the program, the size of the program, it seems like the students have taken on a very active role in publications in a slightly different way. From what I've seen, it seems like they have become more engaged in the general uh, production of publication through the design and and, uh, printing of posters, the direct engagement in larger scale projects like the LA tent book that's floating around with a few copies here today. Is that an accurate observation? Yeah. I mean, we're we're a boutique operation. You know, mm-hmm. We can't, you arrive in Los Angeles, which is a major, major force of architecture. We can't compete with the institutions here in terms of resources, number of faculty, number of students. So we had to, and wanted to do something different, maybe something, uh, and we kind of had to do something original also to get time and attention, uh, even with the people who, you know, the Tom Maines, the, you know, Michael Rotundis, all these characters. And so the production of the book actually came out of our architecture history theory courses. So it became an original research project for an oral history that didn't exist at the time. And there was no discussion about that. And it was really also for the Getty for their exhibition that was uh, Pacific Standard Time. So it was very original. It just kind of happened. It allowed us access to these uh, amazing voices the students, you know, we, we don't have an infrastructure, so the students are learning the infrastructure. I mean, they have to do everything with us. So it's like they're producing the posters, they're becoming graphic designers. I mean, they all have the talent. It's amazing what, you know, we can all do as a group. And it also has to then be a multi-year project. So we couldn't do anything in one year. It's uh, That was a five-year operation. And we're on a second book that's going to come out soon, which is another multi-year operation. Can you talk about that book? Yeah, that one's a little bit more fun. Uh, you know, we can talk about it later about, you know, this book is quite dense. I don't know. There's a lot of discussion about why produce a, a book on texts of oral history. But that actually put a lot of quotes and a lot of information into the field that people are interested in. But we didn't want to produce something like that. So it's much more fun. It's a little bit more comic book-like, inspired by that. It's the student work, but also positioning 10 to 13 ideas surrounding contemporary discourses that also will have major major forces of academic theory, writing small, pithy discourses. So, so it's a pamphlet. So moving on from the history and <laughs> origins of, of these books, I'd like to start talking about the content creation process. Yeah. And let's uh, stay with, with you. Uh, with the LA10 book, can you talk a little bit about how the students approached the production of, of the work and, and the kind of... Uh, relationship that that you had with the students in developing this this book well ultimately i'm i'm director and teacher so i do have a role but they uh, from year to year took on again the filming we filmed all these events so they they filmed it they in the end we had a class and we turned over an entire theory class to the production of a book and they transcribed the book i mean the, the, the oral histories they also produced analytic drawings 
for each one of the chapters to study that. That becomes part of also the history theory analysis. They uh, formatted the book. So we actually had Jerry, Jeremy Futterman and also eventually Emmanuel Sorno, who literally sat down and produced the PDF of the document of the book. And Bertrand Nelsonzi, who basically, she did the cover, a cool front cover. You know, I mean, maybe I had comments and I could, you know, affect, you know, we, we are advisors, but they're producing it. And it was super fun to do that. Uh, not so easy. But. Would you consider the creation of the, the content of this book to be directly integrated into the curriculum of, of the uh, student studies? So it's not a an auxiliary project that many of the other publications take on outside of their their course load. I, you know, it's a, it was the time when postmodernism, deconstructivism also was becoming an interesting thing to start to think about. So we're producing an original rethinking of that subject related to the history theory, related to design. Also, they're all design students. So they're studying Tom Maine's designs. They're studying Eric Moss's, his collages, how he draws, and turning that into a way in which we could produce a, a document. And then also really important, uh, coming maybe from my own past, you want to teach the ability to produce books and publications. So part of this is really launching the ideas of how to do it. I mean, these students are learning how to do this. So when they go out in the world, it's not a foreign concept to produce documents that matter into the world. And they're really learning all the techniques. And it's not something to... It's a mystery, usually. Publication is kind of a mystery to people. And if you actually can see the process of how you actually get a publisher, it's pretty awesome. Marceline, so OfferAmp is headed by, by you and Ernan Diaz-Alonzo, the, the uh, director and CEO of SciArc. Well, we, we are the kind of editorial advisors. And, okay. Yeah. Ernan's so, editor-in-chief of And then of you're the editorial the manager. But, okay. Oh, okay. So that's just but, an umbrella that... But really the way it operates is that normally I sit down with the students who are interested in editing that next issue and we talk about, you know, what are the kind of themes that we might want to address? What sort of words might be provocative? So we've had issues on, well, the first issue in 2014 was really about LA-isms, LA seeing itself, reflecting on LA. Then we moved to issues like lies and ground stuff trauma. And maybe actually, maybe Lena and Emmanuel can say a few words here as well. I can hand the mic. But I think, you know, we sit down, we talk about this and then, you know, let it sit for a while and then come back and really kind of try to hone in on one of those and try to formulate a prompt and then talk about who might be, you know, who, who would they like to invite? I might also have some suggestions like this person might be great in terms of the theme you're considering. Um, and I do think to tie into the the issue of where those connections, you were talking about the network, Stephen, that's created when you put this publication together. I think one of the most valuable moments is actually as students making contact with those contributors. And so it might be someone that you've never met. It might be an artist. It might be a philosopher. It might be another an architect. Uh, it might be a, a student or an alum from from Syrac or from another school, but just reaching out and actually getting into a dialogue with that person, I think is like one of the most valuable things. Oh, yeah. A publication can be the best excuse to, uh, to meet some of your heroes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, so I think in a way that's where I'm also curious because a lot of times people say, well, isn't it sort of limiting, you know, how many people are really going to 
read that um, when there's so many things out there. And uh, to my mind, it's not so much about attracting this huge, enormous audience, but I think within the sort of local community that we exist in, you know, in our institution and also among, I mean, this is great that I'm so happy you put this together because it's wonderful to for everyone to begin to see the faces um, behind all these publications. And maybe it starts to percolate ideas about, you know, for the schools that don't have them, maybe this will be an instigator to bring that about. Uh, but maybe do you yeah, just want to add I, a few words? About I'd love that? to hear some uh, student perspective on how these themes and, and ideas come about. What, what is a typical brainstorming session among the off-ramp uh, student team look like? So initially started with a conversation with Marceline, where we're discussing the possibilities of where we can think of architecture in a broader sense and where the discourse can engage in new themes and fields. And then for us, it was interesting to kind of think of this publication as a special one because we were looking at it from a perspective of having one issue per year, like this year, where normally it happens like per semester. And or um, so essentially we thought of it as an exhibition and as an exhibition, we wanted it to be engaged in exploration of different senses as well. And then the notion of this tension between the disciplines or where the elastic boundaries of architecture could touch other disciplines. This was important and the notion of trauma as a reflection of, well, in, a, in many ways, current time, but also connection of like senses to the discourse, to the philosophy, to the history, to looking into the critical theory and, and practice as well. And just us being curious on what this topic could bring out from the people we invited. So we invited sound artists, which we admired. And then one of them agreed. And um, Lawrence English, and he produced last year for the festival, he produced work which was called Sirens. And that was exploring the the infrastructure that was left after the, um, the Cold War. And essentially he wrote a kind of an introduction um, on how the environment and sound relate to, to each other. So that was interesting. We also invited a professor from CalArts, Norman Klein wrote, uh, well, we published his piece. So that was interesting. We had architects collaborating with sound artists as to produce the video work. So yeah, so we wanted to stretch the boundaries. Excellent. Thank you. So with the other publication at SciArc underscore, how does this uh, process look like among your team when you, you know, embark on a new issue and you come up with themes and potential, potential story ideas? Right. So I, I think it starts with content generation each year. A lot of the themes that we choose have to do with getting students excited about sending in their work. And the work that we are looking for from students isn't exclusively SciArc work. We very much encourage students to submit work that they've done before they arrived at SciArc, competitions that they've done, work that they've done outside of class. And what that does when we create kind of a really broad topic um, like money or our current issue, which is introversion, extroversion, it creates, we think, a kind of fertile ground for unique ideas to pop up, which gives the editors of Underscore, the three of us, and then also our, all of our junior editors, which are here. Thank you for joining us, by the way. It gives us kind of a really interesting opportunity to look at curation as an act of kind of spontaneous pairing and see what happens when, again, student ideas that we didn't expect 
to receive collide with each other under the umbrella of, of a really broad topic. And in that, I, I think this, the whole student body, I think, benefits from having these unexpected ideas pop up, but it also gives the editorial team, which is much bigger than just the three of us, the ability to, again, start thinking about curation and conversations that we want to foster so that it gets the wheels turning almost, for some of us, for the first time when it comes to publications so that we are constantly reminding ourselves that talking about architecture and reading about architecture is extremely important and that what we have to say about it, no matter where we are in our level of discourse, does fit in somewhere. And we should be in the practice of constantly engaging in the flow of discourse. So this year, that's also kind of moving into a really interesting panel discussion um, series that Underscore is starting. We're going to launch our first event on the 4th where the junior editors and senior editors reach out to find faculty members and people that we admire to sit down and talk about the topic that we've kind of identified as something that's important to us. Again, introversion and extroversion this year. So there's, even though the the content generation is kind of really vague, it all seems to kind of funnel down into a really intense moment that culminates in the production of the publication and then also hopefully these panel discussions that we're going to be launching this year. So did you have anything to... I think just like um, mostly focusing on the fact that we pick really broad topics is important because we want everyone to feel welcome and included in some aspect. And also, yeah, like you were bringing up, we also try and do interviews with faculty. We started that last semester just to like mix the voices of the students and the faculty at the same time. I'd also like to point out the thing we also want to get out of the book or the experience of having a physical book and having these themes is... Yeah, we're sort of curating what's in it or the, some of the work that's being out, but we don't want for students to feel like they're reading something that basically we want students to be able to read this book and come out with their own ideas of what this theme means to them. Um, so for this case, we did introversion, extroversion, where we're going to split the book in half um, and kind of have like a um, you know, decision on what is that in architecture and for student work, especially at SciArc. And uh, hopefully after reading that book uh, or after reading the publication, you'll find your own definition for these themes. So we're actually sort of changing these themes slightly so that students are deciding where they stand in the conversation instead of this is where we are. Alvin, can you talk a little bit about the focus of the content and the pamphlet series in general and how your super tall uh, installment was developed? Yeah, so the as, as said before, the focus on the content is stemming from ideas that are coming from these visiting guests, uh, namely Frank Gehry, Michael Maltzen, and Mayan Song. I can only speak on my experience working with Mayan Song on, on that one. And so his interest in the super tall had a lot to do with uh, two different projects he was working on, which happened to be one in New York City and the other in, in Shenzhen, and uh, the kind of proliferation of like the current trend in New York City with the pencil towers and, and thinking about this notion of the super tall, I kind of inherited that topic and ran with it and began exploring it more as a sort of history of, of skyscrapers and, and thinking of, of skyscrapers as something that are uh, what I would call uh, kind of tributes to an era or, or tributes to a moment in time and uh, actually had the students look a lot at film. And so we looked a lot at films about Los Angeles Namely, we looked at uh, Rainer Banham Loves Los Angeles, Her, and uh, Blade Runner. 
And all three movies are uh, movies set in Los Angeles. All three movies take place at a different time in Los Angeles. But all of them were, let's say, forward-thinking future visions of Los Angeles that were actually critiques of current-day Los Angeles in terms of when they were authored. And so using that as the kind of, I guess, catalyst, asking the students to kind of rethink what a, a tower might be in those two locations. And so in that particular studio, the students worked in teams and both teams or each team had to produce a, a tower project in two locations, one in Shenzhen and one in New York City um, in Hudson Yards. And basically looking at them as the mirror reflections or let's say opposite reflections of one another, Shenzhen being the New Jersey to Hong Kong and uh, New York obviously being the New York to New Jersey. But thinking about how those two conditions, if they were to inherit this client, which was a fictional client that they were, were to propose on their own, but that client was to be representative of kind of a critique of current day politics, current day capitalist movements or ideologies, and how that might reflect in a kind of future vision for what the world might look like. Would you consider the Super Tall more of a documentation of the student work or an editorial initiative? From the students, I, I would say it's a little bit halfway because um, mm -hmm. we didn't we cut out all we definitely edited the student mm -hmm. work. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was not all included, but in part, it is also very much a tribute to the students. It mm -hmm. is very much about their work and their efforts, and trying to position that work in a way that maybe better reflected the ideas we brought into forming this or, or to drive the studio where I think a lot of times, obviously uh, the faculty member will come in with ideas about what the studio is about, but the, the students oftentimes have their own ideas. And so we also wanted to be representative of, of their ideas as well. All right. With pool, the one distinguishing factor from the way that you've described pool compared to the other publications that we have up here is that you are intentionally creating content that involves people from outside of UCLA. That said, can you also share some insight into, into how the editorial team works together to define each issue? Yeah, so we divide our editorial cycle into the UCLA quarter system, basically. So first quarter, we're producing our call. We take a full quarter to do it. And so for us, what that entails is really tone setting and choosing a topic. Every single editor on our team pitches a topic and everyone has a voice in that topic discussion, uh, which is starts out as very nebulous and broad ranging. And we ask everyone to bring to the table what's getting them excited, what's getting them angry, what are they liking and not liking in the field right now. And most of our topic proposals actually in some ways have very little to do with architecture. People are bringing art and sound design, great example, always movies, a little bit of everything to the table because we know that within our role as architectural students, uh, the architecture is always going to worm its way back in. So we try to start a little bit more on the outside and then work our way in. And at the same time is that the graphics team is actually pitching their idea for what this issue will look and feel like. So the graphics and topic are very much developed in tandem. During the winter quarter, uh, we are accepting submissions and creating our internal content. So a lot of interviewing, interview editing, setting up poolside, which we've been producing as in the last two years as a fully internal piece, which 
is an opportunity to play with materiality and acts as a foil against pools, very luxe and large format. And then the spring quarter is all about pushing it out. So uh, a lot of graphic iterations um, and a high level of editing are submitted pieces. We have a very strong editorial hand. Almost every piece is a conversation with its submitter. So I've got a few questions just uh, for everybody. In terms of working among your fellow editors uh, on these issues, what kind of format does that usually take? Is it all in meetings do you work on Slack, uh, text messaging, Facebook uh, messages? How how does that how is that conducted? Uh, well, for pool, we have generally weekly or biweekly all team meetings, and it's sort of expected that the smaller groups, the content editors, the graphic, the website developer, they all have their own meetings alongside of that, and <laughs> we also use Slack. We have a text message thread. There's always a lot of communication. And the nice thing about the UCLA studios is that they're all pretty open. So we all can see where everybody is and can communicate pretty openly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I'd say same thing for us. Uh, okay. We divide uh, each other into sort of teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have separate team meetings every week. And then also in that same week, we have an overall team meeting to sort of figure out how we're going to execute uh, the publication together. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. We kind of we have these we or um, biweekly meetings, um, and then when we break down into these different groups, graphics, distribution, and writing, respectively, um, it's interesting to see new ideas that the junior editors bring up in those settings because they're a little bit more intimate. And the the discussion series is entirely credited to the junior editors as being their idea that came in kind of these settings. So when we meet broadly everyone together every two weeks it gives us an ability to talk about vision and direction that we're going to be taking for the semester but we make sure that we have intimate moments where small groups of students are able and comfortable to bring up really incredible ideas that will transform what underscore is and keep it evolving which is what we want i would also say in terms of workflow like like online is really important to us like google docs and google drive and like our like inner Cyarch server is like those things are really important and a really easy way for us to pass information around. And even though we are really focused on like printing and hard copies, like digital also plays a part in how we work. The communication with the contributor was entirely by email for us because we had people contributing from Belgium, from Mexico, from the US. And we used to meet every maybe two or three weeks within the editorial team and to talk about the text and also to try to organize how we're going to get all the images, uh, editing process, uh, when we are going to upload everything. So it was more like internal team meeting and all the communication was done by email and took a long time. It was a very interesting process, back and forth. Really nice. I could. So the LA10 was done as a seminar, so we would meet twice a week and talk and work as a group. The new book... I invited two alumni, Birchin, Emmanuel, and Maya, who's working on the book through a, a grant to dinner at our house. And mm-hmm. We chatted and work on it and workshop it. And of course, it's all on the internet so in terms of my cloud. So my next question about content creation, which fortunately we have both students and, and faculty here that can address this from different, different sides. How much freedom do you have in uh, expressing your, uh, what, what you want to write about. Is there, is there a, 
Is there a limit to what you can discuss in terms of just in general or, you know, can you be critical of your own school? Does anybody want to be critical of their own school? Is there, has there ever been a time where the school has had to step in and say, that is a topic that, that we can't write about? I think for Underscore, that was a big part of why it was formed was to give students a voice that was outside of like the umbrella of the faculty and give them a chance to say the things that they want to say outside of studio or outside of their seminars. Um, And I think for us, like the school is really supportive of that. Like they're really excited to hear the things that we're saying, even though it's not like directly under their guidance. Um, Yeah. And um you know, Underscore tries not to turn down student work unless it promotes violence or is, you know, something that we would never, ever publish, obviously. So it's, but, a, it's, it's a boundary that is self-imposed by, by the editorial team. Right. And it's, it's tricky. I remember from our fictions edition at the beginning of the school year last year, we had a couple articles that were critiques of studio culture that became almost personal critiques of some faculty members at SciArc. And we decided to publish it because we have the forum to do it. And we wanted to be encouraging students to say what's, you know, what's on their mind, again, as long as it doesn't cross an ethical boundary. And yeah, we'll just have to see how that goes. I mean, <laughs> this, this year, we're still kind of trying to figure out the structure of how Underscore handles these, these, these issues. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'd also say that it's it's sort of developing into the faculty hearing us out now, kind of. Um, that's what we kind of want to be like student led, have these student discussions, we're having student panels um, with like faculty on it. So there, it was at first it was um, you know this is our discussion and we're having it internally and I we're trying to sort of have it for the whole entire school. So you know we make these topics or themes. Students are putting out their work, and now other students and faculty can then respond in the next um, issue and see. So it's not just like a conversation with yourself. It's a, it's one of those one-two um, situations that we really do um, think is really important for furthering underscore. So Pool is um, entirely self-funded or grant-funded from work outside of the school, and we have no academic advisor, so we have no oversight, which is something that I think we delight in in a lot of ways and uh, absolutely want to keep for the magazine. And we absolutely have the viewpoint that we could criticize the school if there was ever a way in which that needed to or should happen. Um There are moments that I delight in us publishing things that I've heard a professor say that he or she hates before. Um, So that definitely does arise with us. But I think in general, uh, the way that we approach critique and criticism is wanting to always stay somewhat within our playful lens and tone on the one side. And then on the other, wanting to make sure that critique is coming from a genuine place. So we would never do anything to criticize our institution that hadn't first been instigated in face-to-face conversations or some kind of ongoing dialogue between Poole and the institution. We wouldn't just blind print something. So, I mean, we're produced a book that's an oral history with Wes Jones, Neil Denari, um, Erico Moss, Tom Main. They s- said really inappropriate things, not only about each other, um, but specifically about Frank in every single chapter. And then you're like, well, I, you don't know what to do because it's going to get published. We let them look at it to edit it. Eric took out a lot of stuff. Most people didn't. I kind of asked 
beg certain people to change some tonage about some of the things they said. Anyway, there's a the original piece, like the actual unedited version, is on reserve at the Getty Research Institute. I put it there just for record. But yeah, no, it's you have to edit. You have to be professional. Well, I, part of the reason I ask is because I we we used to have a very popular student blog section on Archonnect many years ago. And there were a few instances where, you know, I remember uh, Robert Stern had an all-school meeting demanding to find out who the representative from Yale was at the time. A lot of angry, angry feedback from, you know, when, when you're given a single person carte blanche, uh, you know, to talk about their, their school, sometimes bad things can happen. But I, I, I get, you know, an, an editorial team may have much more uh, common sense in, in how these issues are addressed. Uh, another thing that I, a, a unique position to be in in school, based on my own experience and, and professionals that I talk to, is school is a is a very special time where you can dedicate all of your time and energy into looking at issues of theory and, and new technologies, the kind of stuff that we, when we finish school, we don't have time to, to get into. It's the, the really exciting stuff is the stuff that brings back a lot of people back to school to get graduate, postgraduate degrees. When you come up with ideas for your issues, do you tap into that, what, what's going on in school that, that perhaps the practicing world of, of architects and designers don't have direct access to? Or are you taking a, an approach that may be a little bit more traditional in the architecture and design publication world where you're looking outside for inspiration? You know, it, it's, it, it's a really good question. And I think I'm going to answer it by saying that our platform does not address that almost on purpose. Um, <laughs> Does we, not address what you're what you're doing in school, what exactly. you're learning in school. Okay, yeah, it's it's um, if it is introduced via a submission in our platform, we're happy to to include it. But we also have to recognize that a lot of the ideas that students are bringing to SciArc are coming from all over the world, and so Underscore is established more as a platform not to focus on emerging architectural technologies as something very specific, as an example that you brought up but more, more as a forum for discussions on theory or politics. Mm -hmm. And considering that Underscore's audience is students who, again, are for the first time addressing some of these issues that we're encountering at SciArc, having a forum that we're able to openly discuss them with each other from our differing perspectives, I think is extremely important. And so I think we've positioned ourselves more in that world and less as some, something that's trying to bring cutting-edge avant-garde work that's coming out of SciArc already. You know, that's just not our, not our goal. And I think with OffRamp, uh, because it is edited by students in the Design Theory and Pedagogy program, and the whole aim of that program is to look at not only what we're going to be teaching in the future, but how we're going to be teaching it, how we stage discourse, how we communicate. So a lot of the issues that come onto the table, like the issue of trauma, I think are things that we see reflected, that the editorial uh, body sees reflected in the larger culture outside of the school, but also maybe, you know, looking at SciArc, we've got the undergraduate, the graduate programs, and postgraduate. So there are a lot of different things happening. And I think that percolates up to some of these themes. Um, for us, in that sense, it was also really interesting to see the midterms for the for the thesis because we would go around and just sit at the reviews. And for us as pedagogy students, that's super interesting in the first place. But then you also see the topics that raise the same questions of like, 
the traumatic experience through like going into the hospital or having to pass the immigration rules or like it's touching so many topics and then we have a range of things to choose from and to invite the students as well to contribute their work. So yeah, that was also really helpful, you know, so it's kind of a circulation that fits in as well. I'd like to move on to the uh, design and production of these publications. And maybe, Irvin, uh, we can start with you as you are the, the sole uh, graphic designer on the panel that's, uh, that's in charge of, of defining the, uh, the look and feel of, the, of Underscore. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach the design, how, how you, you work to, to brand the publication, and, and how how you incorporate the design as a reflection of the content of each issue? I guess first I'd like to say uh, it's not just me. It's my uh, graphics team. I'm kind of just... Um, but you're the only one on the panel. That- okay, you're right. You're right. I, well, then shout out to my graphics team. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'd say we always want to change it up every year. Um, when I was lucky enough to be part of the senior editor team and being the graphic designer for it, one thing I noticed was a, a continuity in terms of the aesthetics of the of the issue, which I think is a really good idea. Um, especially um, some of some publications I've seen in the past, you know, they sort of continue their look and feel. And uh, but I wanted to go about it differently this time. And I th- I think that the way I see it is like every year there's a you know new batch of students coming in, and it's really diverse, honestly. And I think that the book also has to reflect that. So down to the cover, how the images are placed. It's got to catch, it's not only has to catch the eye, but it has to, I feel like graphics are also a representation of the student body and what they're doing too. So, you know, last year it was uh, sort of money was our issue. Um, so you can't see it for the people in the back, but the, the font is on there. <laughs> but it's like, um, uh, it's uh, kind of playing with um, sort of how you view money sort of, uh, Right now, you see it as a blank thing, people in the back, but the closer you uh, come to it, it might be something a little more valuable. You know, this year, we're, we're like, you know, we're going to stray away from the sort of minimal look that that had and just go extremely loud. And it's re- for me, it's more just whatever the energy I, I'm, we're getting from the school and the students, I really just want to make sure that that's seen on the, the cover um, mm-hmm. um, down to every single page. So uh, that's why we don't, we've stopped like continuing the sort of set master spreads or themes that um, every issue was having before. Not that that was a bad thing. We thought it was great because it gave us something to work from. And uh, this year we're trying to change it up because there's just more more things to talk about. More There's more students, more incoming students. And we just want to make sure that what we're doing is relevant for the, the students at that time. So. Do you have a background in graphic design? No, I, I'm just an architecture student. Um, Self-taught with graphics? Um, sure. Uh, yeah. and I, I will say that my graphics team and I, we, we do a lot of research on terms of like what publications we like, things that, you know, not just some of that are out right now, but also like publications from the past, you know, we're trying to, so we're, we are catching up even though we all don't have like graphic design backgrounds, um, not all of us, but I think that's what makes it even more interesting. Cause there's something a bit punk about that. The idea that students are trying to format a publication and say that this is how we, this is how our student body represents ourselves instead of like an aesthetic that we think is graphic design. We're just being honest. Cool. I mean, you guys have a very strong visual identity in your, in your magazine. How has that been established and how have you been able to maintain that kind of consistent 
aesthetic? Well, I think that in the beginning, it it started with understanding that we wanted it to be a certain size, and it would become a luxury sort of item. It is, it is a very big. I remember uh, in our Connect Outpost, we had to make a special uh, taller. Right. It's uh, kind of you can't flip through it like a normal magazine. It sort of has to be out on the table. So that attitude, I think came from the beginning and we've maintained the size and there's been conversations about whether or not we'd want it to become a more conventional size. I think we're not doing that. I think we're going to keep it nice and big and just highlight the different uh, follies with the full side. And in terms of the graphics, you can see in the first two issues, if you've been looking at the flipping through, those graphic qualities were pretty consistent. And in the third issue, it sort of evolved to be something a little bit more subdued. And in this most recent issue, it's a radical shift, that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the graphics have, have shifted a lot, and the grids also change year to year based on the graphics team. So did the graphics team change regularly? The graphics team, uh, I believe, has had at least one new member every year. Okay. As is the same for most of our teams. I think we also look definitely to a lot of precedent outside moments. My two favorite moments that have happened with our graphics team bringing in examples before have been uh, one time someone brought in a children's book of shapes and it was just this like cut out booklet that completely changed the way that we were thinking about some of our interview spreads for the last issue. And then we had a moment where we had one of our graphics designers do a whole presentation on how do we get the energy of Stefan from SNL (laughs) into a graphics spread. And, you know, I'm not sure that it ever went anywhere, but having those tangents and that kind of ability to start to learn to argue through these very silly things in a very serious way uh, really is demonstrative of the skill set that we start to develop. What comes first, the design or the content? I think they co-develop and then we are very iterative. There is so much work that never sees the light of day. So in the end, the design would never stay if it was contradicting the content, but we do want to start to establish at least a stab or try at what that design will be from the very beginning of the school year. Mm -hmm. Um, So both evolve. Stephen, generally, a, uh, I mean, in my experience, when I was a student at SciArc, there was a whole department for publications where big name designers would come in to design posters. You guys do everything in-house. Students do everything. Students. Yeah, we kind of every year, there's a workshop around the theme of the studio. They produce a whole new poster for that. Someone will ultimately, I mean, architecture students have incredible graphic talent and they really can produce um, amazing works given the opportunity. Um, Something I just want to say with the LA 10 book, uh, you know, the students did produce the graphics behind it. There were concepts related to one, like a, the cover was like a a Brady Bunch theme, you know, with a 10, but also related to team 10. But then once we produced a PDF and we got Lars Mueller on board, then you actually have this international publisher who does beautiful books talking and communicating and showing we had no, I had no, you know, we have no idea how to produce a book like that. He, he, it was great. It was a great education for everybody. So, Directly with Lars Mueller? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that just kind of happens by, I mean, to everybody, you, you know, you produce a PDF, you send it out there, you never know. They might respond and say, yeah, sure, we'll do it. 
And the posters that are all designed by the students as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Does the school have a, a style guide or branding <laughs> guidelines? That uh, All right. So, yes, uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo has very strict guidelines uh, related to the qualities of colors, the green percentage of green and the percentage of beige that is absolutely required. We are sometimes considered an offshoot. Therefore, we get away with what we get away with. But there are constant discussions also about the website because the students produce the website too and all the stuff around it. You know, I'm not going to, I don't want to put on record what I was about to say, but um, you know, (laughs) colors are important and Mm -hmm. style and contemporaneity is important. And so there is issues around that. Yes. Marceline, SciArc has a long history of really kind of dominating the architectural education world of like branding and presentation. I think, I think the school has a, has a reputation for that, you know, going back to April Griman's uh, work for SciArc that made it into the MoMA. What kind of, I mean, I imagine there's a lot of pressure on new, on new initiatives to maintain that kind of level of, of quality in terms of graphic identity. How, how does that work at the school? Is there a, is there a team that kind of oversees the, the look and feel of everything that goes out? Yeah, there's um, the communications department and publications department, several graphic designers. That is all kind of a department in itself. So in a way, we had a limited ability or we have a limited ability to alter that because we were actually really happy to be able to have this CMS designed for us. Um, So that was something the school did as a, a way of saying, okay, we can host you and give you tools to you know, work within this space. But obviously then there is a limiting factor as to how much can you customize because in order for it to sort of work as part of the larger website. Although, you know, I've seen like with the most recent issue of trauma, Lena and Emmanuel made a choice about how the, all the images would be treated with a similar filter, the, the placement of where the prompt would go, the prompt became almost its own article. So I think there was a fair amount of customization, but nowhere near the amount like with pool or... So again, it is that kind of trade-in once you leave the sort of uh, physical domain and you're working within this other space where you have a number of parameters that you can kind of alter, but then certain things are fixed. So yeah, so that identity really is part of the larger the larger school website identity. I believe all of your publications have both an online and and print component except for off-ramp uh, which is all offline. I know that uh, pool and underscore have both either have already ventured into offline events and or upcoming events panels. How do these different forms of, of media under the title of your publication, how, how do those help kind of complement each other? For us, we're only print right now. Like we don't do the online portion of the magazine anymore. What I mean is you, you still have a website. Like there's still, still right. an online component where you can catch little glimpses of not not all of the, all of the content. But um, yeah, yeah. I think that the three of us are trying to move away from that actually a little bit because we feel like there's kind of an overwhelming amount of information online right now that kind of there's like a flattening of information, a flattening of hierarchy. And there's something really 
a little bit more powerful in like handing someone a book that they have to sit there and physically read. It's like a more conscious act where I was, I was explaining it to them the other day. Like, like people will be like, Oh, did you see that post on Cyrix Instagram? And I'll be like, no, I didn't. And then they'll be like, yeah, you liked it. And that it's just so like, like a natural thing that I'm like, I don't know. I, I didn't see it. And, mm -hmm. but if you talk to me about the, like the last book I read, I'll probably remember because it's, it's a physical act. It's like a really conscious act. So I think that like the, people who started the publication did start the website ever since it got handed down to us. And I think the, the generation before us, we've been trying to move away from that. Yeah. And to address the online component that we do have, I will say it's not a place where we publish. It's a place where we advertise what we have published. Sure. Yeah. So we don't have our full edition online. But it has a, the, the web does offer something to right. your publication. Snippets. You know, sure. It gets you curious. But, you know, the, the other thing I think to address is that we are student funded and we distribute to the students for free. So and we we love that relationship that we have because it means that our publication only goes as far as the students themselves go. And if we do that online, we lose a little bit of that direct connection between our audience that we can really only foster in this very specific way. We also recognize that if we do have the special thing that we want to continue to investigate as being printed media, the second that we move into digital publication, we really can't go back to ever being only a print magazine. So we take that decision and hold it as though it's a very heavy decision and we carry it with us. And it seems at times that it's kind of a ticking time bomb for us considering our issues or focus on continuity that that shift will happen. So I think it's a really, for us living in the moment, it's a very interesting experiment to see how long we can hold on to a print publication and what it does as print and then in the future, we can kind of compare where underscore has gone versus what we're trying to do with it right now. For pool, for digital, I'll just say, watch this space for now. We have uh, some exciting things planned out over the next few months and the next year. One thing that we have always kind of had a focus on is making the dissemination of architectural discourse a little more friendly for someone who's not an architect to step into. And I think that comes a lot across in our graphic design. Hopefully it also comes across in the fact that we post all of our back issues online for a pay-as-you-will PDF download. So that donation can be $0.05, cents, $5, whatever you want. And I think it's also really played out over the past year in the types of events that we've started doing and attending David Vasquez, our events editor, has formed a really strong partnership with the School of Arts at UCLA. And so we've been going to many more open events, whether just like general school openings, events held at the Hammer at UCLA that's not solely targeted to students or necessarily to only members of the arts community. And we recently went to Ciclavia, which was a lot of fun. And I think that was actually the most people that we'd ever spoken to at an event was this thing that was completely divorced from architecture, but so much about the public space and uh, and that sense of being in space. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that our web presence hasn't been as strong as our, our print presence. And I think that's partially due to the fact that when Pool began, they were all funded through our, our own student funding and fundraisers. And all, all of those events were extremely important to the production of Pool. And now that we've been given a little bit more freedom with the Graham Foundation, we've been able to focus our energies on the website as well. 
And how does social media play a role in your publications, if any? Um, social media, I suppose, plays a role in, you know, just reminding people that we're there and updating everyone on the progress of production. We use Instagram stories to sort of highlight what goes on in the meetings throughout the academic year and just hoping to reach out to a little bit more of the community. We always joke that pool has like 12 times the amount of Instagram followers than we do have purchasers. So certainly it's a high level engagement. Yeah. Um, for us, the Instagram is a very like new thing. Like I think we have three posts, um, but it is, we have been using it. We've been trying to use it kind of the same way pool has. We've like used you as inspirations just in like keeping people updated on what's going on and also like when our submission deadlines are and you know like about tonight's event or things like that but we're right now we're really focused on like trying to build the same type of following that you guys have and again ours is kind of under the umbrella of sire uh -huh. social media so sometimes you know the website will run a news story about the release of you know what we just put out and try to kind of drive uh some viewers to our site but yeah so that does play a role and ours is student run so they manage the instagram when they do it and it's it's actually useful well before we wrap up i want to talk about thoughts from all of you on the future direction of publishing as students in architecture school is it something that that you feel strongly should continue what is the value that publishing brings I know we've brought up a lot of a lot of uh, benefits of of publishing so far today. And what kind of are we going to be sticking with traditional kind of media that we're working with right now with uh, kind of a struggling print medium websites? are we are we looking at a completely new type of media that we may be disseminating information through publications? Has anybody given this uh, much thought on on the next uh, few years or maybe next few decades? Yeah, I think for for underscore again, we're we're very student focused, so it seems like whatever media we engage with at any given time is very location specific. So perhaps print media, we shift away from that and move into digital media. But I think the conversation that would have to happen then is how to wield those new tools in a way that continues to impact the location that we're in in a very intense kind of kind of way. So I, I can't really speculate on the future of technology and communication and how it's going to really continue to evolve over the next few years. But I can say that whatever underscore chooses to do, it's going to be very, it has to stay focused, you know? So, so the, the topic of like focus with evolving digital technology, I think is really a really interesting topic. I think Corey made a really powerful comment that the internet has gotten flat. Yes. Uh, and and it has gotten comment. flat. I mean, Archonnect is like a Google of architecture. You won't be, you'll always be what you are and you'll always be the thing that everyone will go to for that internet knowledge. Well, the but interesting, for everybody yeah. else. I mean, I started Archonnect in, you know, 22 years ago and when the web was kind of non-existent for most people. So it was new. I feel like in the last few years, we've started publishing print magazines. We've opened up a retail store basically done everything that economists say that we should avoid at all costs. But it's because it's because the, the web is feeling very saturated and boring in a way. You know, in the beginning, the web was incredibly exciting because all of a sudden the entire world was at our fingertips. 
But now it's like a very small portion of the entire world is at everybody's fingertips and the really juicy stuff is offline. So there, I think there is, there is kind of a return back to the tangible and the real world, the uh, IRL. So, I mean, I, I think that while there's a lot of technology that is very promising with VR, AR, there is kind of a, a reversion back to life that it seems like some of these publications are tapping into with print and events. Yeah, I think the events are crucial. I really um, appreciate what Rain said about the cyclavia and sort of combining audiences, people who might not normally be exposed to these discussions that we're having. And within the school, they seem very, you know, we're, we're sort of aware of them, but really going outside of the school and integrating the presence of like the physical publication, or maybe finding some way that we, we do that with our um, digital platform. But Actually grafting it into an event space, um, I think is very powerful. I think that's going to be maybe something we're going to be seeing more often. And as with underscore in the panel discussion that's coming uh, next week or November 4th. Yeah. Is that at SciArc? Open to the public or is it just a school-wide event? Uh, it, it is open to the public, but we are not advertising it outside of SciArc. So if you're in this room right now and you want to join us on November 4th, please feel free to join. It'll be a fascinating conversation on the personality of architecture and the legibility of images. And we'll be talking directly about some some of the social media topics that we just brought up today there. So, so I think something that we will see very soon, um, and I would not be surprised if it came out of SciArc or out of UCLA Ideas Campus, is some version of VR publication. Mm -hmm. That's not just looking in a book at VR, but how do you aggregate VR experiences? So something to all keep our eyes on. But in terms of the future of publication or how these student publications get started or how to find them at USC, I think it's a strange balance to be uh, a student working on a publication. Um, you are in studio, as we all know, so much of the time. And it's something that's both completely exhausting to take on, but it's also something that we take on because of that exhaustion, in a sense, and because of wanting to find something else to express. So I think looking in ways in which students are feeling that way can be supported through funding, especially of student publications. I think that is the number one block to having more, right? Even if you can fund food for editorial meetings, you will get some eager students in a room. Hmm. So I actually have a question for all, all the other panelists here, specifically the students, because something that I've witnessed, uh, and I'm sure everybody in this room has probably witnessed it if you're on Instagram, which is a sort of emergence of, uh, let's say, architectural memes as a form of, of critique, criticism, whatever you want to call it, but uh, uh, having a voice um, in terms of uh, very particularly, I would say, you know, SIARC graduate Ryan Skavnicki, you know, and, uh, you know, like there's, there's a number of these accounts out there where Ryan is the one that I would say at least is putting his face behind it. Right, like, 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 so it's actually not uh, a sort of anonymous posting and, and kind of critique where he can hide or others can hide behind what, what they're doing. But I'm, I'm curious how that relates towards, like, let's say, an evolving conversation or the way the conversation that, let's say, students are having and students are putting out there uh, is being impacted by what you guys are doing or if that is something that you guys are being influenced by at all. It's actually funny you brought up that um, because I met Ryan actually two and a half years ago when I first was doing an internship in L.A. 
And uh, it was actually, um, I think Eric's back there. We, I, I met Ryan for the first time and um, he was discussing about like memes and architecture. And uh, it, it made sense because really we're, it's just catching up to how we, how a lot of us talk to each other. Um, you know, we're really witty. Um, and I'm not saying architecture is this big funny thing, but it allows, it, it's, it becomes another way for people to sort of discuss about, um, you know, what's happening right now in architecture, what buildings are getting built. And it, it also allows things to be more relatable without all the architect speak that's sort of, you know, I'm constantly getting every day. So I think that it's, it's important and it's relevant. I think that it's kind of the same as when we were talking about creating really broad topics. Like it's just, it's like about starting the conversation. Like you're saying, it's like, like, did you see that meme? But then you're like, then it like turns into something a little bit deeper than that. And that's kind of what we're hoping with our publication as well. So I think that's where the overlap is, is just like in getting people excited about talking about architecture. Yeah, I agree. I think it's more of an opportunity for our colleagues and peers to commiserate and like, yeah, make eye contact and realize, oh yeah, you think this is bullshit too. Um, And again, it's just opening up that conversation and just democratizing architectural discourse in a way that I think both of our publications hope to do so. I think that's uh, that's a wrap. Thank you so much to all the panelists and uh, all your great insight. I also wanted to say thank you, Paul, for arranging this and putting this together. And uh, it's very strange to be hearing your voice not in a headphone in my headphones or while I'm driving. <laughs> thank you. And that concludes our show for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a comment and rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.